Good morning, my dear church family. It is so good to see you guys again. I've, my family and I have been out of town for a couple weeks on vacation. We've been up in the Northeast and New York and Connecticut and having fun and going to summer camp and kayaking and hiking and all sorts of stuff. And um, so it was great, but it, I really am so grateful to be back with you again, not just because I love you all, but really because I love what it is that we do here every week, that there is something very powerful that happens when we engage in these every, everyday, ordinary traditions like worship that remind us of what is most true about ourselves, about God, His love for us, and His reign in the world, like we just heard sung to us. And so that's what we're doing today. We're remembering the great love of the triune God for us and what it means for our everyday lives. So this morning, um, we are turning back again to the book of James. If you've been with us at all this summer, you'll know that we're spending our summer studying the book of James together, we're calling this series A Faith That Matters, A Faith That Matters. And the reason is because James is a highly practical book in which he is seeking to give us not necessarily new information as he is a vision of transformation. He's not so much interested in only a transactional faith that helps us get to heaven when we die, but he is deeply interested in a transformational faith that is about how the good news of Jesus actually comes into our lives and begins to penetrate and change every dimension of our existence. Or to put it another way, he's not so much interested in your profession of faith in your mind as your possession of faith in your soul so that it begins to work inside of you and change you from the inside out. So today, uh, we come to one of James's favorite themes, one that he talks about a lot and one that is really important for him because he stands in the whole tradition of Jewish wisdom literature, and that is this theme of wisdom. What does it mean to be wise? James is interested in wisdom because he believes that if you want to live a transformational faith, then you have to be a person who is wise, who finds your wisdom rooted uh, in the true wisdom of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles there. Or if you don't have your Bible, you can turn to the bulletin on page 9. We find this text from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Let's listen as we hear God's Word. Verse 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Our world is incredibly complicated. James's world was incredibly complicated. He was writing to his friends, not just to give them information, but to help them navigate life in an extremely complicated and complex world that they lived in. Life for them as it is for us is extremely messy. 
Our world, our society, for them as it is for us, was in constant flux and change. There's very little consensus in our society about right and wrong, very little agreement about what makes for a good and wise life, as also it was for them. Institutions in our society that we once relied on for stability, like government and schools and religion, that once we depended on for coherence and clarity and that we could look to for a direction to go, no longer have that same strength and are often questioned and undercut. Our lives are full of problems, as was those that James wrote to, full of big problems, full of small problems, full of medium-sized problems, just overflowing with problems. And so James is writing to a group of people and speaking today to us whose lives are full of problems and are trying to figure out how to navigate life in a confusing and chaotic world. Do you ever feel that way? And one of the complicated things is that who do you look to for guidance? Who do you look to for direction? What is the right pathway to go in the midst of this complicated world that we live in? Do you look to your mother? I'm sure she's nice. Do you primarily look to her? Do you look to your college roommate? Do you look to Oprah? Do, do Do you ask Siri? I mean, she knows a lot. And it sounds really smart, especially when you put her in a British accent. She sounds really smart. But none of these people, as good and helpful as they are, have the capacity to help you navigate life in this incredibly complex and challenging world that we live in. And James knows that. And so he is deeply interested that you learn to access true wisdom. Wisdom that doesn't just help you in your everyday life, but actually matures you into the kind of person that is able to live well. Wisdom. So that's our theme for today. So let's just begin with some basic questions, I think, that we can glean from this text. The first is this. What is it? What is wisdom, according to James? Let's let's just begin with the beginning here in verse 13, if you'll look at that with me. James says this. Now, you might expect him to say something like, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their mastery of concepts. Let them prove it with their impressive vocabulary. Let them demonstrate wisdom by their ability to speak and teach and impart knowledge eloquently. You might expect James to say that because those are the things that we typically associate with wisdom, right? Intelligence, knowledge, eloquence. But what does James say? He says, are you wise? Show it by your life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. He says wisdom is demonstrated not primarily by eloquence or intelligence or by clever words, but by a life well lived. So for example, for people like me, who basically make my living by standing up in pulpits and trying to speak and teach eloquently, you might say at times, oh gosh, Pastor Corey, he sounds so wise. But James would say, nah. No, you can't actually know if Corey is wise by just listening to his words. He says the way that you determine if a person is wise is by actually looking at my life, looking at the way that I live in the private dimensions of my life by talking to the people that I live with about the way that I live. Please don't do that. Don't ask that. (laughs) That would be embarrassing for me and for them. But what he's saying here is wisdom is far more than cleverness. It can be tempting to listen to a person who appears to be very smart and clever and always has the right word or the right answer, but that's not wisdom. You can know a lot about a lot of things. You can even know a whole lot about the Bible and still be an arrogant fool who makes a mess of your life. 
And I'm sure that many of you know people who know a whole lot of information, but is never somebody that you would want to follow. Knowledge isn't enough. It cannot give you the tools you need to navigate life. You can read a book about flying a plane. You can study all the parts of a plane. You can read the history of aviation. But then does that qualify you to fly a plane? Who wants to get on a flight that is piloted by a guy who knows a lot about planes, but who has never flown one? Raise your hand. Not me. Because what James is saying is that wise people demonstrate their wisdom, not by their knowledge, but by how they fly the plane. How they live their lives, the goodness and the quality of their lives. The word that James uses here for good, you see that? Their good lives in verse 13. This is really interesting, actually. There's two words, Greek words, that mean good. Uh, one means moral astuteness, and the other means beautiful. Like, it's an aesthetic word. And James uses the second one here. He says, the wise person is the person who lives a beautiful life. If you want to know if somebody is wise, look at the way she lives. Look at her relationships. Pay attention to the decisions that she makes. How does she spend her time? Who does she spend her time with? How does she spend her money? What are her priorities? How does she treat other people? How does she treat the poor? James is saying it's not enough to be smart or clever or knowledgeable or to be an expert or to be good or moral. If you want to make it in this world, if you want to navigate the complex challenges that we face as a people, what you need is wisdom. And wisdom is not intelligence. It is applied understanding. It is the skill of living well in a confusing age. And that wisdom is demonstrated first and foremost by a beautiful life. Not intelligence, not eloquence, not knowledge, not morality. It is demonstrated first and foremost by a life well lived. That is wisdom. So then the question that would result from that is, how do you know true wisdom when you see it? What does a beautiful life look like? And this is actually a hugely important question for the age that we live in because I think many of us are really confused about what does it mean to live a wise life? What does a successful and good life look like? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once told a parable, a parable that I love about some mischievous thieves who broke into a jewelry store one night and instead of stealing every, anything, what they did is they took all the price tags in the jewelry store and they switched them all around. So they took the price tags of the really priceless items, you know, all the diamond bracelets, and they put them on the worthless pieces of jewelry. And then they took the price tags on the worthless pieces of jewelry and they put them on the most expensive items so that what looked to be extremely costly was actually worthless and what appeared to be worthless was actually inexplicable, sort of infinitely costly. And Soren Kierkegaard uses that as a parable to demonstrate what has happened to our world, that the price tags of the world have become completely switched, so that our perception is skewed, and that our understanding of what makes for a good and worthwhile life is completely mixed up, and that we tend to value what is cheap and we overlook what is actually worth pursuing, and we see what is foolish to be wise, and we see what is wise in God's sight to actually be foolish. And James knows this. He knows the price tags have been switched. And so he is wanting to equip you to be a good detector of counterfeit price tags. He's wanting to give you the eyes to be able to discern good, true wisdom from bad, false wisdom. He wants to equip you with what you need to make it in this world so that you can determine the false wisdom that leads to death and the good wisdom that leads to life. And so in verses 14 through 18, 
He goes about contrasting the true wisdom of God from the false wisdom of the world. Now, I know you kids are in summer break. You don't want to be in school, but let me just like be like a, a teacher for just a moment and throw a chart up on the screen. <laughs> Forgive me for that. But I really, I think it's important that we see the contrast that James is making between true wisdom and false. And for each of them, he contrasts the source of that wisdom, the characteristics of it, and the ultimate results. Okay? So let's begin with the source. Where are these wisdom sources come from? Well, true wisdom, James says, is sourced in heaven itself, in God himself, verse 17. God has made this world. He's the creator of it and the owner of this world, and he's made it to function with a certain design. God has designed our world and your lives to work in a certain way under his design that brings life. So think of it physically, for example. Physically, you are a physical being with a body, and you cannot just eat anything you want, Unfortunately, there are certain foods that are really bad for you, and there are certain foods that are really good for you, and if you just insist on violating the physical design of your body and only eat Twinkies and beef jerky and Red Bull, then you will die, you know, probably sooner than, uh, sooner than, than you were meant to. If, on the other hand, you align your eating habits with the physical design of your body and eat things that are good for you, like carrots and Brussels sprouts and gelati celeste ice cream and things like that that are actually productive for your body, then, then you will live. In other words, if you eat in accordance with your physical design, it will help you flourish. And in the same way, God has given a spiritual and moral design to our world. And there are certain ways that God has designed human life and community to function, and life works best when we live under in accordance to that design, when God is at the center, when God's way is authoritative, when his way is glorified. See, so the wise person is someone who recognizes that they are made by God and like God and for God, and they want to live their lives in such a way that is under God's authority in accordance with his design. Does that make sense? That's true wisdom. Now, On the other hand, false wisdom is not sourced in God. It is sourced in what James says in verse 15. It is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. It's kind of scary, right? He says it's earthly, which means that false wisdom has no thought of the world to come. It's only concerned about the here and now. It is unspiritual in the sense that it's not tuned into God at all. It is only tuned in to the fulfillment and the desires of the self. And then it is demonic in the sense that false wisdom actually emanates from the lies of Satan, who doesn't want any human being to look to God as the source of life and authority, but only wants us to look to ourselves as our first parents did so many years ago in the garden. And so, you know, this might sound a little scary and you might be thinking, oh, I'm not, don't worry about me. I'm not following any demonic wisdom, but it's actually far more subtle than you might believe. I have become fond of and sort of a student of commencement speeches. I I just think commencement speeches are really interesting. I think it's really hard to give a good one. Um, And in some ways, I think commencement speeches in our time have become almost like our modern platform for the dispensation of wisdom in which we invite uh, famous or noble or people that we perceive to have lived an exemplary life, and we ask them to dispense wisdom to those who are going out into the world. It's very difficult to hear a good one, and many of these speeches, I personally think, just don't have a whole lot of substance in them. Even some from the most prestigious universities. For example, I found one from Yale. I don't have anything against Yale. I think Yale's a great school. But in this particular speech, this is what the guy said. He said, we have supplied you with an education, but we have not supplied you with a philosophy of life. This has got to come from you. 
from your own act of learning, your own choices, your own decisions. Think for yourself. When it came to history, we have imposed our beliefs on you because that knowledge is fixed. When it comes to physics, when you said E equals MC cubed, we imposed our beliefs on you because there is knowledge there that is fixed. However, when it comes to values, wisdom, goodness, what is right, my friends, that is up to you. Think for yourself. Now, that sounds inspiring. I mean, we've all heard commencement speeches like that. But James, I think, would shudder. He would shudder because he would warn us of the potential danger of such guidance that in the end says that whatever meaning or purpose there may be in life, you must look within to find it within yourself. Watch out, James would say. False wisdom is sourced in the earth, in the self, and ultimately from the lie of the evil one who would seek to have you look to anyone and anything but God himself to navigate your way in this world. Does that make sense? So they're sourced in very different places. What about the characteristics? False wisdom, let's stay in the right category, is characterized by bitter envy and selfish ambition. If you live according to false wisdom, you will have no reference point apart from the needs, perspectives, and demands of the self. Everything will keep coming back to your own preferences and desires. Every experience, conversation, circumstance is always just kind of coming back to how I'm feeling, how I'm doing, how I'm looking, how I'm progressing, like a powerful magnet that draws the shards of metal to itself. False wisdom sets the self at the center and everything is always drawn back to it. And this results not only in selfishness, but in bitter envy, which means that the one who is living by false wisdom is constantly in competition with everyone around them. Uh, for those of you that are kids that are here, I know that some of you have seen the new Toy Story movie, which I've heard is great. Uh, I still think it's probably not as good as the first Toy Story movie, which I think is just an amazing and beautiful story. And in that, in that movie, kids, we see an example of bitter envy. Because you remember when Woody, who was the most beloved toy of Andy, was suddenly this new toy, Buzz Lightyear was brought into his life. And instead of rejoicing over this new toy that the other toys did, Woody was fueled and fired by this bitter envy, which propelled him not just to seek to undercut this new toy, but actually to destroy him. And this is what false wisdom does. It sets the self at the center. You need to be right. You're convinced you always know the best way of doing things. You're defensive, unable to receive criticism. You cannot delight in the successes or triumphs of anyone else because they only become threats to my own ego and my own success. So those are the characteristics of false wisdom. Terrible they are. Bitter envy, selfish ambition. Well, in contrast, the characteristics of true wisdom are these. I know that that might be hard to see, so you might want to look at your text. He says, first of all, it's pure, blameless, and capable of evil. True wisdom is peace-loving, always seeking to unite and reconcile rather than divide and alienate. True wisdom is considerate, gentle, meek, yielding to other people. True wisdom is submissive, approachable, showing deference, willing to listen to the other side of the story. True wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit, kindness, compassion, love for neighbor. True wisdom is impartial. It shows no prejudice or favoritism or partiality. True wisdom is sincere. It is without hypocrisy or pretense. And notice that all of these characteristics, did you notice how relational they all are? Wise people no longer have the self as that magnetic center, but are always putting the needs of others before their own, and so they are seeking love and harmony in a community. And as a result, 
The result or the outcome of true wisdom is what James says, a harvest of righteousness. Don't you love that? They sow peace and outsprings righteousness. Good and beautiful things are cultivated in a community in which wise people are participating and leading. Harmony, peace, unity, relational wholeness, people seeking the good of the community, the good of others over their own. In contrast, false wisdom produces disorder and evil, chaos, wickedness. Those who live by false wisdom are always creating conflict, bringing disorder, engaged in petty factions, partisan divisions. Just as when you violate your physical body's design and eat Twinkies, which leads to death, so when a community violates God's spiritual design and puts the individual's happiness over the good of the community or the personal fulfillment over the common good, that inevitably leads, what? To moral and social breakdown, chaos, disorder, evil. Why? We violate the wisdom of God. So you can see how different these two wisdoms are. Can you not? One is rooted in God, the other in the earth, the self, and the devil. One is characterized by submission and love, the other by selfishness and envy. One results in harmony and peace, the other in chaos and evil. You could say that false wisdom, if it had a, a, a slogan, it would be your life for mine, whereas true wisdom's slogan would be my life for yours. And let me ask you this. Which community would you want to live in? The one marked by true wisdom or the one marked by false? Which kind of society would you want to live in? Now, here's the thing. You ask anybody, whether they're Christian or not, which community you would want to live in, they'll say the one on the left, but yet we live in a world in which the price tags are switched. In which what is foolish is considered to be wise and what is wise is considered to be foolish. So in our society, we exalt the widest possible freedom for individual choice. Our vision of an ideal community is one in which people live free and unencumbered individual lives, living any way he or she pleases. Commencement speakers urge young people to get in touch with themselves and to find their greatest true source of authority within. Our public leaders, our entertainment idols, our elected officials exhibit all the characteristics of false wisdom, sowing conflict, fueling partisan divisions, lashing out with words to caricature opponents, promote themselves and their partisan interests over the common good. Those we look to for direction model such things and we congratulate them for their foolishness. See, we've normalized selfishness. We've rationalized egotism. We've encouraged expression of the unfettered autonomous self, false wisdom reigns. And the Lord says, come learn the way of true wisdom. See that what we call wise is actually foolish and what is foolish is actually wise. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. The way of Jesus, the, way, the wisdom way of Jesus will always look foolish to the world. Because in the way of Jesus, the way up is down. The humble are exalted. Submission leads to freedom. The poor are rich. The weak are strong. The last are first. You want to live, you got to die. You want to receive, you got to give. You want to find life, you've got to lose it. And this looks like foolishness to the world. I love what Tozer once wrote. He said, a Christian is an odd bird. He or she feels supreme love for one he has never seen. Talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see. 
expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be made full. He admits he is wrong so he can be declared right. He goes down in order to get up. He is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest. He dies so that he can live. He forsakes in order to have. He gives away so he can keep. He sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, knows what goes beyond knowledge. Christians, friends, are weird. And they should be. Because the way of Jesus, this foolish way of of Jesus, which is wisdom, will always look foolish to the world. And so in light of all of that, the last question is this, how do we get true wisdom? How do we get wisdom, especially in a world that is pushing us down the false path? Well, let me just suggest a few things here as we close. First, admit your need for wisdom. James said in chapter one, that if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask for it from your father who gives generously without finding fault. And the presumption is there that you don't have it and you need wisdom. All of us do. The paradox that scripture says of wisdom is this, those who think they are wise are fools and those who know themselves to be fools are wise. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, if any one of you thinks you're wise in this age, you must become a fool that you may, may become wise. So the first step in becoming wise is that you admit you're a fool. Make sense? James in many ways probably got this from his big brother Jesus, whose first beatitude was, blessed, rich are the poor in spirit. For Jesus, the way to blessing is to admit spiritual poverty, And for James, the way to wisdom is to admit foolishness. The starting point of wisdom is to recognize your own need, your own insufficiency and smallness. And this is why for James, humility is always deeply linked with wisdom because at the heart of humility is knowing that you are a person of great need, that you're not at the center and that you need help. Wisdom begins with dependence and helplessness. So when faced with a challenge or difficulty, I wanna ask you to answer honestly, what's your first impulse? Do you say to yourself, I can do it? Do you muster up your strength because you believe you have what it takes? Do you trust your judgment above all others? Or do you say, I can't, but Christ can in me. I don't have what it takes, but the Father gives me the power of the Spirit. I love what J.A. Packer says. He says, not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. So the wise person begins with admitting you're a fool. Have you done that? Have you said, have you had the courage to admit you're a fool? That's the first step to becoming wise. Second though, after admitting your need for wisdom, you receive the gift of wisdom. James refers in verse 17 to the wisdom that comes from heaven. What's wonderful about the gospel is that unlike in that proverbial journey to wisdom when you have to climb up the mountain and to find the guru at the top uh, to dispense to you the wisdom that you crave, the guru has come to us. You don't have to go up. Wisdom has come down. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. Jesus is God's wisdom personified. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2. So the good news is, my brothers and sisters, you don't have to go out looking for wisdom because wisdom has come out looking for you and he has found you in his grace. And so Jesus has come to save you from your foolishness and self-centeredness and self-orientation that always leads to destruction. And he has come to forgive you, to set you free, to bring you back into a God-centered life, the life you were made for. So wisdom is there for the taking for free. 
So friends, that's the second step. To, first is to admit your foolishness and your need and your helplessness. And the second is to receive the gift of grace that God gives you in the person of Jesus, who is wisdom himself. Receiving him, coming into relationship with him, learning to walk with him all your days. Have you done that? Have you received Jesus as God's personified wisdom given to you? Finally, we must practice the way of wisdom. If wisdom is not just a gift, but also a skill, the skill of living well in a confusing age, then like any skill, it can and must be learned. Skills take a really long time with a lot of tedious habitual practice to gain. You know, I, as much as I hated it growing up that my mom made me practice my cello for endless hours when so many times I wanted to quit, and she made me do scales, she made me do theory and all this, I am so thankful that she did because at some point along the way, I can't say for sure when it was, but at some point along the way, I changed from being just a boy with a cello to becoming a cellist, where I could just pick up this instrument and play a Bach cello suite. And that's the way wisdom happens. Wisdom doesn't just happen like that, where you wake up one day and you're wise. It happens in long, gradual journey in which you commit to a thousand small decisions, habitual act, actions to practice wisdom so that eventually you find yourself wise. You know, we're, we're celebrating today our, our dear Ann Bonsack, um, who turned 100 this month. And Ann's right here, actually. She came to join us in worship today. And a couple of years ago, when we were doing a study on generosity, we were looking for someone to interview and put on a video, and we ended up interviewing Ann. And I, I, that was a really powerful experience for me because I think before that, I almost had thought about generosity as like a personality trait, like something you either have or you don't. You're either a generous person or you're not. But what Anne demonstrated to me is that generosity is a discipline of wisdom. That it wasn't just like she and her husband woke up one day and they were generous. It was over many, many decades of making very deliberate decisions in the way that they chose to use their wealth. The way that they saw their wealth, not as a tool for personal accumulation, but as a tool for love and for the common good. And after so many hundreds of little decisions about their lifestyle and the way that they chose to use their money over many, many decades, eventually she became a woman of tremendous wisdom when it comes to wealth and many other parts of life. So that's what happens. That's, that's, what, that's how wisdom is practiced. Every day you are presented with a hundred opportunities to either go the way of wisdom or foolishness, to either go the way of the self, your life or mine, or go the way of Jesus, my life for you. So for example, tomorrow morning, you'll be driving to work, some of you, and you'll have an opportunity to either cut in behind the guy behind you to get to work slightly faster, your life or mine, or let him merge in front of you, my life or yours. You're in the break room about 10 o'clock, and you go in and find there's only really one cup of coffee left in the thermos. Do you pour it into your cup and scamper upstairs and leave the next person, haha, to make that next pot for yourself, for them, your life for mine, or do you make a new pot and spend the time to do so? Now, you might think I'm being funny here. I'm not. I'm, I really mean it, that the pathway of wisdom is forged in the smallest decisions of our everyday lives. You know, in a tough meeting at work, when, when a supervisor is angry, do you pass the buck and place the blame on others, your life or mine? Or do you take the fall for the team, even if you're not fully to blame, my life or yours? Kids, do you take the last popsicle and then scoff at your brother? Ha <laughs> ha! 
Or do you give it to your brother and sister and lay down your life for his? In your professional life, do you look for ways to promote yourself and your own advancement, your life or mine? Or do you look for ways to promote and advance the career of others, even at your own expense, my life or yours? Do you stick it to your enemies and try to expose them and get them in trouble, your life or mine? Or do you love your enemies, forgive them and seek their good, my life or yours? In arguing with your spouse, do you insist on your own way and doing things because you're convinced it's right, your life or mine? Or do you surrender your way and honor the concerns with empathy, compassion for the other, my life or yours? Do you see what I mean? There's hundreds of small decisions, small opportunities, every single way in which we can choose to go the way of wisdom. We can become a student of wisdom, and our teacher is Jesus himself. The one who on the cross showed us wisdom in the fullest, my life for yours. My life poured out for the life of the world. Jesus, our master, who in giving everything away gained everything for us and for the world. It is the foolish wisdom of the cross, friends, which takes an instant of grace to receive and an entire lifetime to learn. The foolish wisdom of the cross. So stay close to the master is my appeal to you. Learn from him. Walk with him. Lean on him. Listen to him. Depend on him. Surrender to him day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. And in the end, we will find that we have lives that are beautiful, that he will make us wise. So let's pray that that happens. We thank you, Master Jesus, that you are wisdom, that in you are held all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And thank you that you are willing to endure being seen as foolish in the world, so much so that you were nailed to a cross and that through that foolish act, you demonstrated the wisdom of God to reconcile all things to yourself. Help us this week, Jesus, to be those who follow in your way, even when it is painful. Help us not to be those who go the way of false wisdom, which is your life or mine, but help us to go the way of true wisdom, laying down our lives for others, my life for yours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.